Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. So we've done director retrospectives in the past, and we've even done a two-part retrospective when we did Spielberg. We're going to now do another two-part retrospective, talking about the movies of Quentin Tarantino as his latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That that was the ellipse right there. Um, <laughs> you were young. The, <laughs> maybe I am as well. No, we're going to be talking about the films of Quentin Tarantino uh, in a two-part series. So in this episode, we'll be discussing uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2. We'll also briefly be talking about uh, True Romance, which Tarantino considers one of his, even though Tony Scott directed it and Tarantino wrote the script. Uh, we won't really be delving that much into Four Rooms, which Tarantino directed a segment on. Uh, also, we won't really be talking about the one scene Tarantino directed in Sin City, uh, for those who remember <laughs> that. Um, with Nor spe- his TV sojourns into ER and CSI. Yeah, we won't be talking about those. It's mostly <laughs> they're films. weird. <laughs> just weird yeah so uh, instead we're going to be talking about uh the, his films and i guess briefly just real quick we'll kick things off with true romance uh which i haven't really I, i've been re-watching his movie tarantino's movies for uh, an article i'm doing but i haven't i didn't bother with true romance because he didn't direct it it is tarantino's voice through and through yeah uh, for sure um what are you? What are your thoughts on True Romance? Uh, it's not one of my favorites. Uh, it's one that I admire a little bit, but it's never one that. Uh, I mean, I was a Tarantino obsessive in the '90s, uh, as I was kind of starting my own uh, journey to becoming a cinephile. I found Pulp Fiction, and my head exploded. Um, so I just kind of devoured everything of his. But True Romance was one that I just didn't really spark to that much. Um, it's interesting, but it, and I think it's it's got some of those elevated universe uh, qualities of of some of his films as well, um, and some solid performances. Obviously, uh, Gary Oldman, um, Brad Pitt. Um, but it, I don't know. It, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I should probably rewatch it. But it's not one that I think about very often. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like, I just it's a film that like, oh, that's interesting, and I think it's arguably ahead of its time as well. Uh, for what it's doing in terms of character dialogue and and the sort of the pace of it. But it doesn't, I don't know, it's not a film that like I feel compelled to revisit as I do other movies. Um, but I think it definitely sort of, it announces itself. And, and, and to be, and, you know, Tarantino was working as a screenwriter. He also did Natural Born Killers. Uh, he did uncredited rewrites on Crimson Tide. Uh, although it's very clear where his voice comes in <laughs> in Crimson Tide. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it's not really till, you know, Reservoir Dogs, which premiered at Sundance, uh, that you really sort of get this announcement of a new talent. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about Reservoir Dogs, um, which I think is... On my most recent rewatch, I was kind of like, man, I wish Tarantino made more movies like Reservoir Dogs, if only because it is very lean. <laughs> like, like Reservoir Dogs moves at a very quick pace. It's like an hour 40. And Tarantino typically these days delivers movies that are well over two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, and I just, I like the pace of Reservoir Dogs. I like the, the pitter-patter of it. I also do think it has some of Tarantino's 
lesser qualities. It feels, it definitely shows that Tarantino has evolved, that he is not the same filmmaker now that he was in 1991 when he made this. Um, that he's definitely, his voice and his sort of precision with language has has grown up a bit. Um, I think if he were making Reservoir Dogs today, he wouldn't lead off with the with the Like a Virgin dissection. I think he'd still have that scene where the yeah. guys are just talking, but I don't think he would be talking about how Madonna's pussy is bubble yum. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. But that's the thing, right? Is the is in talking about Tarantino, you also have to talk about what the landscape was like in the nineties and how he himself shaped the landscape to come. Um, so I imagine someone who has not seen a Tarantino movie, who has seen a bunch of other movies going back and watching Reservoir Dogs may find it a bit derivative. They may feel like it's a little bit familiar, but it was, I mean, it, that's one of the things that blew my mind was that this movie opened with, uh, you know, a seven, eight minute monologue about like a virgin and a character explaining why he doesn't like to tip. Um, which just was not a thing that you did did very often in, in movies. It just felt very, uh, you know, inconsequential to the plot and it really had no bearing on the plot, but it was just a way for you to kind of come to understand these characters and who they are and what they're about and what they're like, uh, and just kind of live with them. But I agree with you. I think, I think the movie would be better with that scene later on. Um, after you've come to meet some of the characters a little bit down the road. I think it's fine to open with that scene. I just wouldn't open with the monologue about like a virgin. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> I think it's uh, actually, and I think that scene is important because to me what that scene does and what, what that move, what, what the first three movies in Tarantino's filmography are kind of about, I think are taking what's are, are sort of a deconstruction of coolness. Um, I think Tarantino is kind of a great remix artist artist for his influences, but I think from his storytelling perspective, he is all about breaking down characters that you think are cool and showing that they're actually deeply flawed and very misguided. Um, and really, I think what a lot of his imitators mix, miss is that like, oh, it's just cool characters. And really, these characters aren't cool. What I would say yeah. is that they taught, like they lead you to believe that they're cool. And then as the movie unfolds, you see that they are fuck ups and that yeah. they are sort of in love with their own image. And Tarantino is about breaking apart that image or that they're demented. Yeah. Or that they're just insane. <laughs> um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs, I've seen it a lot. Um, upon this most recent rewatch, and both you and I have, have rewatched all of these films for this retrospective series we're doing. So um, they're fresh. Uh, they're fresh in the mind. Yeah, very fresh. Uh, I didn't love Reservoir Dogs on this rewatch as much as I thought that I did. Mm. I do find it a little bit indulgent, um, like the Madonna scene. Um, and that's, eh, I really like Tarantino's films. But I also constantly have that problem where I'm watching some of his, some of his films and I'm like, dude, get over yourself because he's so in love with his writing. Um, but then you get to such well-written scenes that you're like, oh, OK, yeah, there's the good stuff. Um, well, and, you know, the thing is, is like you can be like, get over yourself. But honestly, the guy has the goods. Like yeah, that's that's the thing. that's the drawback. Like there are some directors like get over yourself because they're not good enough. But like look at the scene where um, – Freddie Neuendijk is having to learn his story about the weed and the way it is. I mean, it's essentially a monologue, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's broken out and redone in such a way that it goes from 
from genesis to rehearsal to performance to it becomes it's it to to entering our reality yeah. like it's it's a amazing transformation done in just this short little span but it's done so well so as both writing and directing it's incredible and it makes you angry like oh this is his first movie <laughs> damn it like, it's I think a lot insane. of filmmakers would kill to have a movie as good as Reservoir Dogs in their entire filmography. And for Tarantino, it's his first. And then for, and we'll get to it, and then for Pulp Fiction to be his second. Right. <laughs> Which is just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the, uh, and this is, this film is all dialogue because it is such a contained setting. Um and it is compelling and and it's also really surprisingly touching, which is something I uh, had kind of forgotten about. But um, the relationship between Harvey Keitel's character and Tim Roth's character and how that evolves over the course of the film, I think, is really, um, really kind of sweet uh, and then not sweet. But um, for the most part, it's it's very sweet. Um, and then, you know, obviously, Michael Madsen is insane. But it's not just the idea that these characters are killers and that these characters are bad men, but it's the way that Tarantino decides to show the violence. So if you take, um, you know, the whole deal with Mr. Blonde and, uh, so he's built up, um, before you even meet him, uh, he's built up as like, he went crazy. He shot all these people. So the movie is already telling you that he's a bad dude and he comes in, and then when he takes them out to the car and into the trunk, um, you see what he's got and you start to kind of get the sense like, oh, yeah, he's bad news. He's bad news. But the shot that really drives it home is when he goes out to the car to get the gasoline um, where Tarantino just follows him. It's it's this tracking shot. Uh, and the camera just quietly, calmly just follows him outside, you know, stuck in the middle with you is playing inside. You go outside. There's no more music. He's looking around and he's just cool as a cucumber the entire time when he's going to get gasoline to light this person on fire. It's just it's really upsetting. It is like, I mean, it's that's the thing. It's like the what what the film does is it says like, oh, these are these are criminals. These are professionals. And like, you know, that's who Mr. Pink thinks that they are. And he doesn't get it that actually they're just sociopaths. Like, that's the thing. Like, when, at one point when they're talking about, you know, did you shoot anyone? And it's like, he's like, just cops, no real people. You yeah. know, like, like they exist in this world with this sort of very sort of screwed up um, morality. And again, that, that first scene is so key because the way that they're talking is like, these guys could be your buddies, but they're also really cool. Like, yeah. you know, they, they're, they're, look how slickly they're dressed and they've got names like Mr. Pink and Mr. Blonde and, you know, like everything. And the slow motion sequence. Yeah, the slow walking. motion. Like everything it done is like, aren't these cool guys? And then Tarantino sucker punches you with Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, screaming bloody murder as he bleeds to death in the back of a, of a white you know, white seated car. Yeah. And like Mr. White is trying to sort of calm him down as best as he can. And it's, I mean, that one, two, that, that dichotomy is just so striking. And that's the movie that is, you know, these guys who think that they are cool as hell and showing how fragile and easily misled that led they can be. Yeah. Yeah. It's really expertly drawn. Um, and, it made a pretty strong impact on me. And I mean, it's, 
it's violent, but it's the way that Tarantino reveals the violence that I think is so upsetting. Like the the ear cutting scene is not nearly as graphic as you would believe it to be, given all the hype surrounding it. Right. Yeah. The the camera, you know, but again, the way that he shoots it. So, you know, the way that it's shot is that Mr. Blonde takes his straight raise, you know, his straight razor goes in and then the camera looks away. Yeah. So even the camera's like, you know what? I don't really want to look at this. <laughs> I don't really want to look at this. And you can hear him screaming and you hear the music playing and then it pulls back and then like the ear is gone. So you don't see the ear cut off, but the it's a great use of letting your imagination do the work for you there. Even though Tarantino is not opposed to gore in his films by any stretch of the imagination. No, and it, I would wager that it was more uh, uh, an issue of budget than anything else. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, yeah, can we make this look realistic or not? But honestly, it's it's budget yielding, I think, arguably the best creative choice there. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and then, obviously, I think the ending is pretty iconic. Um, with the which, Mexican I guess, standoff? Yeah, which I guess we won't spoil for people who uh, haven't seen Reservoir Dogs. But um, it's... It doesn't end the way you think it's going to end. No, but I, I, I think the ending is, is pretty perfect. And I think if you were to take that sort of look at, look at that final scene and look at that first scene and just sort of put them together, you really have a great arc, even though in the film itself, characters don't really change that much. Like, it's not like someone has like a, you know, it's very contained. It's all sort of, you know, it's very moment to moment. Um, an immediate, there's no sort of slow transformation, but the way that these reveals play out, you get a very different kind of movie at the end than you started out with. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then Tarantino just decides to change cinema <laughs> in 94 with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I was, uh, so what was your first Tarantino? Was it Pulp um, Fiction? Yeah, hmm, was it? I guess it must've been. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah, I, I was in, high school and I rented it with a couple friends of mine and we watched uh Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I was the same way, although I rented it by myself. <laughs> My <laughs> friends didn't, didn't know what Pulp Fiction or who Quentin Tarantino was. And I was like, Oh, they say this is a pretty important movie. You should check it out. Uh, my my first exposure to Pulp Fiction was the, uh, the, the, the joke in space jam. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do you one better. I had the entire plot of the Godfather spoiled, um, because I had seen Mafia first. <laughs> Jane, Jane Austen's Mafia. <laughs> yes. So when I watched The Godfather, I was like, oh yeah, the oranges. <laughs> I remember because in Mafia, Lloyd Bridges puts it in his mouth and makes his mouth bigger. Um, way off topic here. But uh, yeah, Pulp Fiction was my first Tarantino as well. And I became just obsessed completely and utterly obsessed because it's it was like nothing i had ever seen before and in fact was like nothing most people had seen before when it came out um it just changes the like the way you tell a story yeah i mean the thing about tarantino is is like people are like oh his films are so derivative and i'm like what i would say is that he is like a, he's like someone who remixes things yeah and i would say certainly like and, and not just that but tarantino because he is so obsessed with film he knows the rules and therefore knows how to break them. And I think, again, that's what separates him from his imitators is that other people are like, well, I love movies too. I'm sure I've seen a bunch of movies. I can make a movie. And that's how you get the boondock saints. But, <laughs> yeah. 
which is yeah. which is just garbage. And I'm I'm sure I'll get angry, you know, tweets about that, but it's garbage. No, it's garbage. It's uh, terrible. It's terrible. Um, derivative hog shit. Yes. Whereas Pulp Fiction actually has things on its mind. Like the thing is, is that not just is Tarantino remixing things. I can give you a thematic through line for Pulp Fiction. That film is about something, even though, you know, what we remember is Royale with cheese. It's a film that again, feels like the evolution of Reservoir Dogs, where in Reservoir Dogs, it's the diner scene and they're talking blah, 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 blah. In Pulp Fiction, you know, you get that twice. You get sort of uh, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny talking about, you know, what you know what to knock over. And they're just having sort of this sort of fun conversation. And then all of a sudden it turns angry and violent. And then the next scene, we're with these two other characters who we don't even know. Um, and they're talking about, oh, you know, what, you know, what was it like in Amsterdam? Oh, it's the little differences. And then they're talking about foot massages and they're just chatting. And then that turns into them about to murder three people yes. um, and steal a briefcase with a mystery inside. But the code is 666. I mean, it is a film that is just firing on all cylinders and it knows it. And it's just it's a lot of fun to go along with it. But beneath all of that stuff it's a film with things on its mind. Yeah. It's uh, because you're following these gangsters who, uh, you know, in cinema are usually portrayed as these kind of larger than life figures. And they're always doing hood rat shit with their friends. Um, and it opens with these two gangsters, just, uh, just chatting. Like they're just coworkers. They're just talking about work and talking about, you know, life and things. And then, uh, you know, they have this, experience that is revelatory for one of them and mundane for the other uh and that uh you know has a ripple effect throughout the rest of the film but not in linear order because the film is told out of sequence which the sequence well it's told out of chronological sequence i think it's the sequence of the film is the most telling thing because it's the thematic arc that tarantino wants you to see And it's a film that is obsessed with consequence and characters who see it and characters who don't. And the sort of, not just sort of fate, where fate is just sort of this thing that is out of your control, but rather, you know, what, you know, leads you to a point and what choice do you make based on something consequential? Um, Do you, do you recognize, um, uh, Fate, not even fate, but do you recognize uh, a turning point for what it is, or do you ignore it and you go on your way? Like when you accidentally shoot Marvin in the face. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like it's a <laughs> it's a hilarious moment. But the re- thing about Marvin getting shot in the face is he gets shot in the face because his the thing he says before he gets shot in the face is, "Man, I don't even have an opinion." Which for Tarantino <laughs> in 1994 is the worst thing a person could do. <laughs> that is the worst thing is to not have an opinion. <laughs> that's true. I hadn't put that together. Um, but it, it, it leads to that fascinating sequence where, uh, you know, the whole, the wolf sequence where, um, it seems as though John Travolta's character just does not understand the severity of the situation and doesn't really care. Um, it's in, and that's contrasted with Samuel L. Jackson's character who just wants to get shit together and go. Well, and the thing about, about Travolta's character, uh, Vincent Vega is that he is, Like, it's not that, like, Jules is some saintly guy, but Vincent is is deeply not just selfish, 
But it, he is repeatedly someone who is shown not to understand the consequences of his actions. I was going to say he's an idiot. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. I mean, he's an idiot, but he is someone who doesn't understand how things could go. Like, he is an idiot, but... I mean, what I mean, the film establishes it very early on when he gets into sort of a pissing contest with Butch, Bruce Willis's character, mm-hmm. and he has no reason to be a dick to Butch. He really doesn't. Butch hasn't. Butch doesn't do anything to him, and he's a dick to him for no reason. And then he doesn't realize later, man, someone keyed my car, and I'm like, I know who keyed your car, dude. How do you not know who keyed your car? It's so obvious. He's oblivious. Right. Um, and, they, and the consequence of that is that he almost kills the boss's wife. Yeah, he almost kills the boss's wife because he has a bag of, baggie of heroin. He's more obsessed with like, oh, should I give her a foot massage or not? Like what? He's obsessed with all these little things that actually don't have that much meaning. But things that are actually important, like, hey, maybe I shouldn't have a bag of heroin in my coat pocket. <laughs> which is just like, like, what, are you a junkie on the go? Why do you need heroin in your pocket? Um, <laughs> which, which I will admit, upon this rewatch, I realized that when I was a kid and first saw this, I did not understand that Vince and Mia are high out of their fucking minds in the Jackrabbit Slim sequence. I did not know that. I don't know what I thought that Mia was doing in the bathroom, and I don't know what I thought that the whole shooting up uh, montage was about. But I know that I was like, how did I – I don't think I understood that as they're having the this conversation about $5 milkshakes and Fox Wars 5 and especially when they do the dance, that they're just super high. Yeah. I mean it almost feels like there's like a different cut of that where it's like this is how they see their, how their evening went and then there's another <laughs> cut where they're just like slurring their words and shit and they're dancing. It's just like them crawling on the ground but they think they fucking nailed it, um, which it could be the case. You hear on the radio later that the trophy was stolen, that they didn't win. They stole the trophy. Um, so – you know, there are all these fun little things layered into Pulp Fiction. And, I, and one of the things that I, the thing I appreciated most on my res- recent viewing is that it just doesn't bother to explain things. Like there are certain no. things that just lead, it just, it, it adds in flavoring. So why does Marcellus Wallace have a cut on the back of his neck? Why is the, what's in the suitcase? Like there are things there and people are like, well, you know, the, the three guys in the apartment are demons and they stole his soul and he, he needs to get his soul back. And the soul was taken out through the nape of the neck. And I'm like, that may all be true, but it actually is completely fucking irrelevant. Like okay, it, it, under the silver lake, slow down. Yeah, exactly. Just calm <laughs> fucking down. It doesn't mean anything. Like that's not really what the film is about. It's just person. It's just flavor for the story and it's fun to have it there but not everything needs a one-to-one answer and like that's sort of i think again thematically what the film is pointing out is there are things that you either notice or you don't and like there are these things that they stick out so what do you do when you have them there and i don't think it wants you to be indifferent but i also at the same time i don't think tarantino is like oh this is the answer to that like that's not his his purpose is not to create a mythology as much as it is to point out cause and effect no but i will say i think an underrated aspect or maybe an under discussed aspect of tarantino's filmography is his ability uh to create worlds and i think the world building of pulp fiction is really tremendous oh yeah the world building is great i'm just saying there's not like you know 
there aren't actually there aren't literal demons wandering around los angeles <laughs> no. in pulp fiction well and that's the thing it's like it doesn't matter what's in the case it matters that you want to know what's in the case and exactly. it matters that marcellus wants it and it matters that jules would almost risk his entire life to get it to marcellus because he knows what will happen if he doesn't get it to marcellus mm-hmm. so that's what matters it matters to the characters but you know you could you could just never explain what's in the case or you could have Vincent open it up and this gold shining light come out. Right. And that's what Tarantino chooses to do. And he's kind of poking you and prodding you. Yeah. Uh, and kind of like, oh, yeah, you don't know. Um, and I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to make it super intriguing for you. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the world building of this, of, of kind of the, um, I guess mythology is not the right world, right word. But it is a, it, it's not the real world. No, um, no, it is a constructed world. Absolutely. Yeah, these um, movies all take place in in very kind of heightened. Um, the heightened. one that's closest to reality is Jackie Brown. Yes, yeah, um, but I mean, I will say the one aspect of Pulp Fiction that I still don't absolutely love is the Butch storyline. Yeah, that one never really like. Every time I watch Pulp Fiction, I kind of like. So you get like the 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 Butch storyline is the Gold Watch, and it hooks you with an amazing Christopher Walken monologue yeah. about what happened to this watch. And it's Chris, it's just Christopher Walken talking, and occasionally we'll cut back to the face of young Butch. But you know, it's just Christopher Walken about you know hiding a watch in your ass, <laughs> and it's just <laughs> it's really yeah. good. It's in just, his ass. Yeah, it's so good. It's it's also the kind of monologue that you can only see Christopher Walken. Like it's hard to see anyone else delivering that monologue. Um, but well, get- I was also watching it though, and and listening to the monologue and thinking like at this point Tarantino was not a household name. Although I guess Reservoir Dogs made that big of a stamp on it. But like it's kind of a weird thing to ask oh, somebody. This to film do. is a is a trip. If you imagine seeing this. Um, if you were to see this movie in 1994, having not seen any trailers for it, not knowing anything about it, this film would throw you for a fucking loop. Yeah. You know, which is essentially kind of how I saw it because I just knew that it was important, but I didn't really know what it was about. Right. Um, well, and interestingly enough, I mean, because it's been imitated so much over the years, uh, a coworker of uh, my fiance's, who's like 22, I think 23 said he tried to watch it and he tapped out, um, in the Jackrabbit Slim scene because he just he felt like it wasn't going anywhere and they were just talking and I was I was like oh my god has it has it been that long like have things changed so much has cinema like become too which I guess like every like if you're watching like Riverdale or whatever like every episode is barreling towards some massive twist at the end. Whereas Pulp Fiction, you're supposed to just sit there and luxuriate in this world and enjoy these characters until you get the payoff, which comes pretty late in the game. I don't know. I don't know how you could be like, yeah, it's characters talking, but they're, the dialogue is amazing. That's one yeah. of the things Tarantino is known for. Amazing dialogue. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that the, the Butch scene falls flat is I don't think the dialogue is as strong there. No, um, they talk about blueberry pancakes. They talk about blueberry pancakes, and he wants to punch her in her pot belly, and you know, <laughs> yeah, and then she she wants a pot belly. Yeah, it's just it doesn't. Yeah, there's not a lot of chemistry between Willis and whoever the actress is that plays Fabian. No, um, and it's just again thematically that it makes sense. It's Butch, you know. It's something it's it's a it's an effect that came to him decades before he was even born, and he has to make the choice. Is like, is this my birthright? worth dying for but it's also what happens to vincent in butch's story that is very important um 
And so you, like, I get the purpose of it as like a as a story. Like, I don't think you could ever cut out the gold watch. It's just a weak entry. Also, you have to get to past the very icky racial dynamic of uh, how much do I want to spoil in Pulp Fiction? I don't know if I want to say what happens. I'll just say that there's there's a rescue that happens that feel that makes me deeply uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Although the the choice of weapon in that rescue sequence, that sequence part of it, I think, is still really terrific. Mm. This? No. That? No. That? Yes. Yeah. No. Again, fun <laughs> little directing beats. I mean, I laugh so fucking hard when the psycho reference comes up. When he's yeah. driving, he's like, that's how you're going to get him, Butch. They keep underestimating <laughs> <laughs> I I laugh so hard every time I see it. I just think it's the fun. That to me is like Simpsons level writing right there. Like that's a comp. That's a that's a joke at the Simpsons level in, in its heyday. Um, it's so funny. Um, and that's the other thing. Like you know, for as for all the cool factor that gets heaped on Tarantino's films, his movies are also very funny. Like they're they yeah. they make you laugh. They have good jokes. Um. And yeah, so fiction is hilarious. Yeah, and so it's okay to laugh as well. Um, I don't want to get to the ending of the film, but the ending of the film to me is is like one of my all time favorite scenes. Like the yeah. the final confrontation in that ending is just it ties everything together perfectly. It and it, again it deconstructs like it's Tarantino being like, yeah, here's this cool thing, but the cool thing didn't mean anything, but now it's going to mean something because we've actually brought meaning to it. Yeah. Um, but on its own, cool things for the sake of being cool are just cold blooded. They don't mean anything. So I, I, I don't know. I love that. Um, and I think Pulp Fiction stands up very well. It does. It holds up tremendously well. Uh, and you, you would see that movie, like if someone walked into a studio today with that movie, someone would say, why don't you just do like an anthology TV series version of it? And just like, you know, each season is a storyline or whatever. Like, I just don't see that movie being made today. Yeah. There's, there's no way. I mean, it, it's kind of a miracle. It even got made in 94. I mean, um, Harvey Weinstein is, is a monster, but I'm glad Miramax existed. I wish it was run by someone who was not a monster. Um, but Miramax was funding all these indie films like Pulp Fiction. Exactly. So, um, so the, uh, his next film, I mean, before we get to the next film though. Tarantino just did some weird shit in the, like he decided to write from dusk till dawn for Robert Rodriguez and he directed that, you know, short in four rooms. So after Pulp Fiction, it wasn't like he ran right into his next film or like True. had a script ready, True. which I find interesting. Cause it, I mean, it's been so long now that you, it's, it's easy to forget. Um, but when the cult of Tarantino was happening, he was doing guest appearances. He was acting, um, Tarantino loves to act. That's the yeah. other. There are two <laughs> things that Tarantino loves, and like you, he can't hide it. And which makes me, part of me makes me think that Tarantino's just like as much as his films get sired for a cool factor. I think Tarantino's just a giant fucking nerd. Um, yeah, which I think is great. But there are two things he loves, which is he loves acting and he loves feet, and that's just yeah. and he and he's and he's and he wants you to know both. And he's the not, feet are front and center in Jackie Brown. Yeah. Well, they're yeah they're they're front and center in a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, they're really front and center in uh, Death Proof. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, that one he's like, I'm making a grindhouse movie, so I can get really gratuitous with it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but before we get all the way ahead to that, um, one of the cool things about Jackie Brown is that, like, so 
you know, yes, Tarantino had been doing things after Pulp Fiction, but like Pulp Fiction like was, I mean, it won the Oscar for best screenplay. It made Tarantino a household name and it was this, it was a huge sensation and he, and he follows it up by a film that again is thematically kind of in the same vein, but he flips it on its head. Whereas his first two movies are taking people that are bad people and showing you that they're not cool. Jackie Brown takes an underdog and shows you why she's the best. Um, like she, like Jackie Brown is like the, the coolness of Jackie Brown comes from Pam Greer as a, you know, as an institution, as like a black exploitation institution and her, her performance. But as a character on the page, Jackie Brown is, she's an underdog. She's a struggling flight attendant. And she is, she, you really couldn't have more of an underdog in a film like this in a crime caper. And she, she, you know, it's, she, she fools everyone. It's amazing. And she's so tired. Like that character feels so lived in. Mm. Um, this is one of my favorite of Tarantino's films. And, and I would say it's think, arguably his best. Yeah. And I think when we get to our once upon a time in Hollywood podcast, uh, maybe we'll do our individual rankings of them. Um, and I'm only halfway through my re- rewatch at this uh, point in time, but uh, I just love the fact that, so she is an underdog, but it's not like she's this scrappy, like, you know, go-getter who's like no, she's, like, she's trying to get it. She's exhausted. She's yeah. in middle age. She uh, has a really shit job as the best she can do. And she's just considering her place in the world. There's a really great exchange between her and Robert Forster where she asks him if he thinks about getting older very much. Um, and he thinks he's asked, she's asking like about her and he, he uh, like comes to realize, no, she's asking about him, but it kind of gets across this point that she's thinking about uh, mortality and like a life lived. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm at this point in my life and this is what I have to show for it. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm kind of past the point of doing anything about it. Uh, and you take that character and you make her your hero. Like, I think that's just, that's brilliant. Cause yeah. in, in any other movie, the Sam Jack and like in the previous two Tarantino movies, the Sam Jackson character from Jackie Brown would be the hero or not the hero, but the protagonist, or the protagonist. Yeah. yeah. He would be the protagonist. And I love that this film is all about tearing him down. It is all about showing that he is full of shit from the very get go. Like he's just someone who like in other Tarantino movies, you love to hear these characters talk in Jackie Brown, uh, Ordell, uh, Samuel Jackson's character loves to hear himself talk. And even Bridget Fonda, which by the way, I miss Bridget Fonda. I know. She's so good. She's movie. so good. And she's, she was like, she was a nineties institution. Yeah. Um, anyway, Bridget Fonda points out to, uh, to, Oh gosh, I forget Robert De Niro's character's name. I'm going to look it up. Oh, Lewis. Lewis. That, that he's just, that all Ordell is doing is just repeating things that he's heard. He doesn't actually yeah. know these things. Like, and and so, that's in one of the opening scenes we meet Ordell. So, like, you get an introductory monologue from Ordell where he's boasting and bragging and, like, doing all this stuff. And you're like, oh, he knows his shit. And immediately Tarantino undercuts him. Right. He undercuts him and shows that, no, this guy is full of shit. And he's just, he's just very much into his own hype. And, like... Yeah, he's dangerous. I mean, the whole thing with Beaumont is, you know, shows that Ordell is dangerous. Yeah. But he's not as cool as he thinks, and he's not as smart as he thinks. And that's sort of, you know, what allows someone like Jackie Brown to sort of win the day. Um, and But, I, you know, the film, I think, ultimately at its core is a romance. It's a romance between Jackie Brown and uh, Max Cherry. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of their relationship. And I think it is so 
it's so cool to come off after to to come off a film like Pulp Fiction, which is young. Pulp Fiction is a young film. It is a film yeah. designed to apply to young people. And with Jackie Brown, you have like, I'm going to make a romance between two people in middle aged. That's the, I mean, there's going to be a crime caper surrounding it, but I'm going to make it first off. I'm going to make it as clear as possible. I'm like, whereas Pulp Fiction is all about jumping around in time and like what's happening and this character's dead. No, he's not. Jackie Brown plays it straight. It's an adaptation of an Elmore Leonard novel called Rum Punch. But I mean, this film really, I don't want to say it holds your hand, but he makes it very clear. Like, this is the time of day it is. This is what is happening. Like, he really tries to lay out the heists that you don't get confused and can then focus on what the characters are doing and who they are while still making the heist exciting, but not making it like, I'm going to, I'm going to lay a big twist on you, you know, with this caper. Well, and yet you still don't know which way it's going to go. No, and it so still keeps a lot your interest, but it's not like it rests on, like, it's not like Ocean's Eleven. No, no, where, you know, pulls the rug out from under you at the very last second. Mm-hmm. No, this one, this one clues you in and then really explicitly shows you, okay, this is what actually happened and this is how it happened. Um, and I think that uh, that's a really exciting part of it. But then the film doesn't end because you still have the denouement, which I think is really uh, tremendous and, and really satisfying. It's so satisfying. I mean, this is just, I think, in terms of his characters, you know, I think obviously Tarantino knows how to write a character and he's, you know, there are characters like that stick in your mind, like Aldo Rain or The Bride. And that's all well and good. But I think Jackie Brown is his best realized character. Yeah, I think uh, I would agree with that. And it's a film that doesn't get talked about too often. I think it's because it exists in this weird sort of... So Jackie Brown comes out, and it's not Pulp Fiction. And I think people at the time in 97 couldn't recognize the film for what it was. And so I think the film, I think it only got one, yeah, it only got one Oscar nomination for Robert Forster. Yeah. And when it deserved... Like, the fact that Pam Greer wasn't nominated for Best Actress is fucking insane. Um, no. But it's a film that... I think people didn't get it at the time. I, I don't mean to write off everyone in 97, but I can get it. Like you see Pulp Fiction, you're like, oh, more of that. I'm going to get this more fun pitter patter dialogue and like, it's going to be cool and stylish. And yeah, it is. It does have some style to it, but it is very different from Pulp Fiction uh, in a lot of ways. And I think people like didn't really know what to make of it. And then Tarantino disappears for seven years, essentially. Yeah. And when he comes back, then he makes a film like Kill Bill, I think is the film that people expected to see after Pulp Fiction. Like it's very stylish, very cool, yeah. very you know, but it's it's more expensive, and it's like he's wearing more of his influences on his sleeve, um, and his influences that are easily recognizable. Whereas, like, you don't have to, you know, I mean, there are some black exploitation sort of references in Jackie Brown, but it doesn't really, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't it really lean on them in the way that Kill Bill leans on uh, its martial arts influences. Um, so yeah, I mean, so. So Jackie Brown just kind of exists in this weird place for its time. But I think, you know, when people discover it now, they're like, oh, this is this is this could this this might be Tarantino's best film. And I think if it, you know, a friend of mine made a point, if if Jackie Brown had been a bigger hit in its time, it may have signaled an entirely new direction for Tarantino and the kinds of stories he told and how he told them. Yeah, that's true, because Jackie Brown is really and truly his only straightforward uh, for lack of a better word, like Oscar movie. Like it's a straightforward character driven drama. There's crime, there's violence, but they're not super over the top. It's got a big flashy leading role. 
Um, and it's, I mean, it's funny, but it's definitely not as humorous as Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, or darkly humorous, I should say. Um, and I think it's a film that actually, like, it, it's almost better or more interesting after Tarantino has made Kill Bill and Death Proof and Inglorious Bastards, because the latter films are much more um, heightened and really into genre, um, really into kind of going over the top and a little bit more of like Tarantino's id. And so Jackie Brown is this really wonderful kind of mature crowd pleaser. It's it's weird. Like Jackie Brown is the film you expect him to make, um, you know, when he's in his 50s, maybe. But uh, it's his third film. Yeah, it's again, Tarantino shows himself usually to be ahead of his time, even though there is an immaturity in his work at times. But I think Jackie Brown doesn't really show that. I think Jackie Brown is, like you said, it's it's a film that you expect from an older, more seasoned filmmaker. And it, you know, we, we talked about, you know, Tarantino's world building, but Jackie Brown is a film in our world. It takes place in shopping malls. It takes place yeah. in an L.A. that doesn't need to feel heightened Um its characters are endearing, but I wouldn't go so far to say that they are colorful. Its most colorful character would arguably be Ordell, and the film immediately tears him down. Yeah. So, you know, it, it it's a film that is very much in tune with trying to be realistic while still having Tarantino's stamp on it. And I also think the cinematography in Jackie Brown is incredible. It's Guillermo Navarro, who was... Uh... I think Guillermo del Toro's longtime cinematographer, or not maybe not long time, but he shot uh, I think Pan's Labyrinth, and I shot I think he shot Crimson Peak. Um, so the colors and the use of color in a lot of the frames I think is really striking and really just pretty. Just kind of makes the the frame look a little more pleasing to the eye. Um, but then also obviously the shot composition and you know that iconic opening shot of Jackie on the uh, moving walkway in the airport, um, I think is really tremendous. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and then Tarantino disappears for seven years (laughs) (laughs) or six years rather. Um, yeah, he just, he, he, Jackie Brown doesn't really take off, uh, at the box office. Um, well, you're forgetting that he, um, directed CSI episodes, (laughs) directed CSI episodes, but also has an iconic cameo in little Nikki. This is true. This is true. Again, Tarantino loves to act. He's not particularly <laughs> good at it, but he loves to act. And I kind of like people are like, oh, when Tarantino shows up as an Australian Django Unchained, I fucking hate it. And I'm like, I love that shit because it's someone who can't do an Australian accent and can't act. And he's there anyway. God bless him. Live your truth, Tarantino. <laughs> there was some famous Australian actors trying to get for that part. I can't remember. Uh, we'll get to that when we talk to Django. Well, yeah, we'll, Django, we'll talk. Was, Django was also a really fascinating production because that thing was fly by the seat of its pants. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely dig into that. But for now, so Tarantino comes back um, in 03 with Kill Bill Volume 1. So the thing about Kill Bill is that it was too – it really is – It he cut it as two different movies, but it is supposed to be one long story that – Miramax was like, you're not releasing a four hour film. We're not doing <laughs> yeah. that. You're not releasing a four hour martial arts film. What we're going to do is you're going to cut it in half and we'll release it in two parts. And so Tarantino recut it to sort of be two distinct parts. Um, there is a version of the film called the whole bloody affair. That is not only the two parts woven together, but in the house of blue leaves, it doesn't cut to black and white. It stays in color. Uh, it had to be black and white because for the MPAA, otherwise it would have gotten an NC-17 for violence. Um, at least that's what I heard at the time. Yeah. 
that was that was the line at the time. Yeah, Volume One was the first Tarantino movie I I got to see in theaters, and I was Same. still fifteen. I had to sneak in. Oh, I did not have to sneak in to kill. I, I was I was a grown ass man when I saw <laughs> Kill Bill. <laughs> I was nineteen when I saw uh, nineteen or twenty when I saw Kill Bill uh, Volume One in theaters. But um, yeah, I I did see it in theaters. And so, but I revisited it. So I remembered like, oh, I like the Kill Bill movies. I like, I like what they say about the nature of revenge. So I went back and rewatched them for, for, for this. And, um, I don't really like the Kill Bill movies as much anymore. <laughs> I think they're fine. I think they're fine. I don't, there's no Tarantino movie yet. And I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet. There's no Tarantino movie that I dislike. I think they all at least are entertaining and have redeeming values. But Kill Bill Volume 1 just feels really hollow. And I think part of that is because all of its payoff comes in Volume 2. But also it just feels like it's just splatter. Like that's the thing. Like it's it's stylish and it's fun, but it's also kind of hollow. And like that to me is – and it's still kind of fun, I guess. Like it is like – I mean it's Tarantino. Like I mean, it, that, that, I mean no one does an opening scene quite like Tarantino and Kill Bill's – really grabs you. Um, But it's also a film where, and from a technical perspective, he's elevating his game. I mean, the fight scenes are incredible. Um, You know, he really did his homework and trying to get these, these fight scenes to, to have momentum and good geography. They look great. Stylistically, it's fun, but there's nothing. It's not like his, his previous films where there's also something to chew on. It feels a bit empty. Yeah, I had the same reaction. And it, this is a movie that the, I saw it when it came out in theaters. I was obsessed with it, just like I was obsessed with Pulp Fiction. Um, same with Volume 2, got the DVDs, watched them over and over again. Although I did, I, I dragged some friends to Volume 1 um, in theaters, who, uh, one of whom was decidedly not a cinephile. Uh, some of my friends in high school, like, you know, we liked movies and they knew kind of what they were talking about. Um, but this friend was just like saw movies every now and then came out of Kill Bill Volume 1 and said that was the worst movie he had ever seen. <laughs> and rewatching it now, I was like, oh, if your frame of reference is like Men in Black and Independence Day, and you go and see this, <laughs> which has these weird sonic flourishes, and there's an anime sequence in the middle of it. There's an anime sequence when she sees someone she hates, it goes, yeah. <laughs> and I know I know that's a reference to something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the thing. About, about Kill Bill is it's packed with references. It's... Yeah. It really feels heavily like Tarantino, like, and I like this thing, and I like this thing, and I like this thing. And it, it kind of overwhelms the picture. Like, and not to say that other Tarantino movies don't wear their influences on their sleeve, but in Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, it really lays it on thick. And you're just, you almost want it to, like, to ease off a bit. Yeah, I will say uh, on this Tarantino rewatch, Volume 1 and Volume 2 were the first that I found myself kind of drifting. My attention was drifting away a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when I talked earlier about his self-indulgence, you know, most of those dialogue scenes, especially in Jackie Brown, you're just riveted through every single conversation that's happening. But when you get to Bill's like fourth monologue, I'm kind of like, okay, I get it. (laughs) Like you're very loquacious, um, but – I don't know. There's something about it. And and you're right. Volume one is all payoff. It's, as Tarantino calls it, it's all – I think he said like volume one is all mythology, I think he said. Um, so it's like building up the mythology for volume two. But it is a problem when you cut them in half and release them as two movies because watching um, volume one, you don't understand why she – you don't understand why they killed her. 
and you don't understand um, exactly like why she's out for revenge so severely. It's not made explicitly clear. I mean, you know, it, it, the, the best the that we, the best that the film can do is sort of like she was she was about to get married. Her former assassin, fellow assassins, tried to kill her, and now she wants revenge. Yeah, and that's that's about as straightforward as it gets. But it's also. The bride doesn't really develop as a character and what you get and you don't really like you don't know her backstory. You don't really know who she is as a person other than sort of this person who really wants revenge. And like that becomes a little tiresome after a while. And I found the best way to show who the bride is and it's it's a weird way to do it is that we understand the bride through by by the people that she fights by by Mm -hmm. by her former uh, uh, co-workers essentially. So yeah. when, by leading off with, you know, the film, her first victim in the, you know, in the film is, is not, even though she kills Oren Ishii first, the first one we see is Vernita Green. And the reason we see Vernita Green is because Vernita Green's a mother. And at this point in the story, the bride doesn't think that matters because her, her, she was pregnant when she was shot. She thinks she's lost the baby. Um, and it like that. And so that, that, but that payoff doesn't really come until the very end of the movie and not really, isn't really even fully realized until late in volume two. So the, the pacing of it is kind of all over the place. And, but again, what you're doing is you're like, oh, you know, if you were to look at the bride and she was just pure murderous intent, you'd have Ellie driver. Like you'd have, you know, Daryl Hannah's character. That's who she'd be. But so we're not really telling you who the bride is by her own actions. We're telling you by the people that she fights. And like, again, that's kind of an interesting way to tell a story. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's a film that I feel it's working harder in the places that it doesn't need to. And it's being lax in the places where it needs more effort. Like it's really going overboard and telling me like, Oh, look at all these references to like martial arts films, but it's not giving me the character stuff that I need. Well, and I think after, so especially after uh, Tarantino's restraint and Jackie Brown, it, the the way to look at Kill Bill for me is to look at it as um, just kind of a tapestry of everything that Tarantino loves mm-hmm. in movies. Everything. Um, so, like, I mean, watching it, like, Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 is a rape revenge story. It's a kung fu movie. It's an anime. It's a spaghetti western it's a superhero origin story, kind of, when you get the flashbacks to Pai Mei and, you know, the mythology of Bill. It's a tragic romance. There's elements of horror in there, even when she gets buried alive. Uh, it's just Tarantino, and because it does, like, visually, especially in Volume 2, it's so diverse. I mean, Volume 1, you go from the suburbs to Japan to this, like, big, wonderful, like, splashy kung fu um a tapestry that you get to kind of inhabit and be in. And then volume two goes to the desert, um, you know, and then finally to Bill's house. It, it just, it goes everywhere and it does everything. And it's Tarantino. I do admire the fact that he's trying to up his game as a director. And I think that he does it well. I think that he, sh- he shows I can kind of do all of these genres, but th- he can do them. And yet that kitchen sink approach, I think ultimately makes kill bill, less than the, the sum of its parts. Yeah, and I agree with that. So it, and that's why, like, 
it just like I understand that you're showing off and you're showing that like these are all the things you can do and isn't it so cool but it doesn't cohesively connect into something that's as emotionally resonant as some of his other films right exactly like that that's the thing I never really get that emotional connection I think you know this time around I think Tarantino and again this is made in 2003 I think if Tarantino were to make the film today he would seize on a lot more interesting aspects of it like Bill's possessiveness yeah. Um, and sort of his desire to, you know, tell uh, the bride what she can and cannot do. And, you know, she's only valuable as a mother. And I think I think the the gender roles would be a lot better sort of I think there, there would be more interesting commentary there. Um, well, I think the film kind of just leaves it as kind of this weird tortured relationship. Yeah, it doesn't really that that never really comes to a satisfying head because you're kind of like, well, why was she with Bill if he was this terrible? And like he's built up as this monster throughout volume one um, when she goes to Hattori Hanzo, like he's has this reputation for being a terrible man. Mm -hmm. So why was she with him for so long? Um, And then it, it is kind of interesting, the idea of him, you know, in volume two. Uh, telling the Superman origin story to tell her basically like you are a killer. That's who you are. That's who you always will be. You cannot try and put on this mask and pretend to play the domesticated life. And I wish it had delved a little bit more. Into yeah. That. Like, like, and who is bill to say that, you know? Yeah. 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 Here's bill trying to live the domesticated life with BB. And like, why is that? Uh, like, why, why is that any different? Um, but I, I thought I kept coming back to, um, thinking about these later Tarantino films is almost all of them works better as a miniseries or maybe not works better, but almost all of them could work as a miniseries or a limited series. And Tarantino has always had something of a novelistic approach to mm-hmm. storytelling and the way that he makes movies. And it's interesting, the constraints of the time, I mean, throughout the nineties and two thousands, a miniseries was something that was, you know, it wasn't splashy. It wasn't prestige. It was kind of even lower than regular television. Well, a miniseries was prestige, but it was serious prestige. So it was something like John Adams or Roots. Like yeah, you, you couldn't make it, you couldn't have a fun miniseries. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And it, yeah, I guess I was wrong in saying it's lower than TV because you had like Band of Brothers and stuff like that. Right. Um, but yeah, they were event series and mm-hmm. they were for, you know, um, talking about very important issues of the day. They weren't for just telling a longer version of the story you want to tell. Right. That that was not what miniseries were used for at that time. Um, but if you think about Kill Bill, if you think about Inglorious Bastards, even Django Unchained. Well, Inglorious, I'm going to disagree with you on and we'll get more into that. But I think Inglorious is a movie about movies. So I don't I mean, it has the length, but I would. Yeah, I, I think as a miniseries, it wouldn't have worked. Well, I I say this to to also bring into it the um, just the notion that Tarantino has also talked about. You know, I wrote all of this extra stuff. Mm-hmm. These are all the extra things that didn't make it into these movies. And you're like, God, that's it's already a really long movie, right? Without all of this extra stuff that you wrote, um, that's interesting. So, I do find it fascinating that he he is making movies as novels, basically as you know. The, Half the of his movies are basically have chapter headings. Yeah. Well, and I was listening to an interview with him recently, and he was talking about how he wrote Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then he wasn't quite ready to do it yet, so he set it aside, and he wrote two other things. He wrote five episodes of a Western TV show that he wants to direct, and he wrote a play. So like, he's just writing all this stuff on his own. <laughs> so he has experience. So whenever the day comes where Tarantino publishes a novel or a play or something, it will not be the purse that he's ever written. Mm-hmm. Um 
And I think that's It'll an just be the first mark. that he's ever published. It'll be the first that he's ever published. And I think that's an interesting mark of him as a filmmaker because you look at other filmmakers and especially look at his contemporaries um, like Steven Soderbergh or David Fincher, these other filmmakers who were coming up around the same time in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Their approach to storytelling was not like Quentin's. And the boondock saints of the world that tried to imitate Quentin didn't didn't understand what he was doing, which is telling a story like a novel, which is having a lot of patience with your audience, which is languishing in scenes with characters where they talk and talk and talk. And you learn about them through the things that they say and through the things they're doing, not through plot. Like his movies are not super plot driven. No, they're really not. And that's why they can afford to sort of be kind of choppy in a way. And I don't mean that as an insult, but sort of like, oh, if I want to put this chapter here or this chapter here, or this chapter here, I can do that. But I don't, his movies are very much are, are like, again, Jackie Brown is sort of this weird outlier. It is, it is a, yeah. it's, it's great on character, but it is also very plot heavy. Um, whereas most of them are not about how do you get from A to B to C to D from a narrative perspective? It's, it's how do your characters evolve? Yeah. So I'm trying to think, is Jackie Brown the only one that plays out linearly? Is Django Unchained fractured? Or no? Uh, Django and Chain has a couple flashback scenes, but it is mostly linear. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because Jackie Brown plays with time a little bit at the end, but not too much. Yeah. And and Hateful Eight is, again, there's one big flashback scene, um, but it is mostly linear as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So. Um, I guess, and oh, and Glorious is linear. They're, they never go back in time, but it jumps forward a bit in time. Yeah, it's just, I guess, it's just uh, because it's, in terms of the narrative. In front of the narrative, yeah. Like, they, they're like, okay, now here's a chapter with this completely other set of different set of characters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I was kind of bummed that I didn't love Kill Bill as much as I did. I was bummed, too. <laughs> I, was I was I was a little bummed, too. Death Proof is also narratively in order. Um, That's well. true. So forget everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally all wrong. Yeah. Um, um, but, but I think that I think Kill Bill still has value. I do still think, I mean, it's a movie uh, or they are films that I'll probably revisit in the future um, whenever I decide I want to do another deep dive into Quentin's filmography. But if I'm going to watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, I don't think either one of these are are ones I'm going to pop in. No, Um, I would I would much rather revisit Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs than come back to to Kill Bill because I yeah and I thought again when I first saw Kill Bill I'm like oh I really like about how it's sort of the nature of revenge is sort of this dead end but there's just a lot of other stuff there that kind of slows it down and it just gets kind of like um, it's mismatched in my brain because there's so much of it mm-hmm. um, I and it is so much out of order yeah. I do think the crazy 88 sequence is still incredible it's really fun to watch I really hope one day that the whole bloody affair gets released I don't know why it hasn't been yeah at this point I mean why not just I mean it exists I don't know why it just hasn't been a way to sell you know hey here's a thing buy it <laughs> I don't understand that either I mean, I know that he has some kind of aversion to Blu-ray or something like that, or maybe that's Spielberg. One of them doesn't like Blu-rays or something like that. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but but yeah, I I would watch the whole bloody affair. And you also look at Volume One and Volume Two, and you think that there are so many different ways you could edit this story together, yeah, um, yeah. to tell it differently that I think would be interesting. Um, so yeah, I don't know. But I also don't love Bill as a character. I don't I don't find him interesting. 
or I didn't on this rewatch. I didn't find him very. He wasn't as captivating as I thought. I'm like, oh, he's just a monologue machine. Like, and I think David yeah. Carradine is giving a, a a fine performance, but I also don't think he's all that captivating as a character. I think Warren Beatty would have been better. Who he wanted to play Bill, but mm, yeah, that would probably have been better. But again, Kill Bill just has character problems across the board. I would say, like, it's it's yeah. a film where it's hard to get to know anybody because everything's so enmeshed in references and you know other characters defining who other characters are. It's a weird film. Yeah, I agree with that, but still I, not a bad one. No, still no. Again, I didn't like hate watching it. I just you know <laughs> it didn't hold up as well. Um, All right, so that's our first part of our Tarantino retrospective. Uh, In the next episode, we will discuss Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, We will discuss uh, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight. And I think, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. When we talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, that will be (laughs) its own own episode. So you can look forward to that. Uh, We'll be ranking the Tarantino films ourselves. Yes. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time. <laughs>